Hey, it's Alice. Just a quick reminder before we get started that the views you're going to hear on the show today belong to Jim, me, and our guests. They don't reflect the Department of the Army or the Department of Defense. Okay, here's the show. But if you go to war, you go in with overwhelming military force. We have over 100,000 transgender veterans. Why do I deserve to go? Why not any of these guys? They all fought just as hard as me. Welcome to Thank You For Your Service, a conversation with practitioners, scholars, artists, and you about the relationship between the military and civilians. I'm Alice Friend. I'm a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a visiting research professor at the U.S. Army War College. I worked at the Pentagon as a civilian in the office of the Secretary of Defense. And I'm Jim Golby. I served as an Army officer for 20 years. Now I'm a senior fellow at the Clement Center at the University of Texas, Austin. On this podcast, we consider the civilian and military perspectives on war, government, politics, and service. Will the military play a role in the 2020 presidential election? Should it? These aren't questions Americans have had to ask much in recent history, but more and more of us are asking them today. Whether we like it or not, and I really don't, the military's role in the election has become a topic of conversation lately. Today on Thank You For Your Service, the military and the election. Hey folks, DCG here. Got a message for all the soldiers out there. We've got an election coming up. You've got the right to vote. You can vote in person or you can go to fbap.gov and figure out how to vote by absentee ballot. That's exactly what I did. Now, you've probably heard generals say in the past, I don't vote. I'm going to stay apolitical. Here's the deal. I'm going to stay apolitical. That's the professional thing to do. But I'm going to vote. And here's why. Back in the Revolutionary War, Private Daniel Martin, 1st New Jersey Infantry Regiment, he fought for our freedom. Because he fought for our freedom, we've got the right to vote. So I'm voting. Military involvement in the election can mean lots of different things, including absentee voting by service members and veterans. Advocacy by veterans organizations or endorsements by retired officers for presidential candidates. Veterans or reservists themselves running for office and using photos of themselves in uniform as part of their campaign materials. Civilian candidates politicizing the military by creating the impression that veterans or even active duty service members support their campaign. The use of National Guard personnel, often in civilian clothes, in support of local government officials for election administration or support to law enforcement. Or even active duty military personnel intervening to try to influence the outcome of the election, an outcome that Jim and I believe is still extremely unlikely this year. Despite competing misperceptions that the military never gets involved in elections, or that it always gets involved in elections, the norms and laws regulating partisan political activity by service members have ebbed and flowed throughout our history. George Washington resigned his commission before he assumed the presidency and tried to draw a clear line against military involvement in elections. But many military officers still openly participated in partisan political activity during the early part of the 19th century. Some even ran partisan campaigns for elected office while on active duty. Following the Civil War, attitudes began to change. General William T. Sherman and later Major General Emory Upton led a reform effort focused on professionalization and nonpartisanship. These norms against active duty participation in partisan politics began to take hold early in the 20th century. There were some notable exceptions, including Major General Leonard Wood, 
who ran to be the Republican nominee for president in 1916 while on active duty. But partisan political activity by those in uniform became more rare throughout the 20th century. Although veterans of World War II in Korea also played important roles in partisan politics. During the Vietnam War, and especially with the advent of the all-volunteer force, norms and laws again began to change. In 1976, a majority of military officers did not even identify with the political party. But by 1996, more than 80% of officers identified as either Republicans or Democrats. Service members are less partisan than officers, but most of that is expected because the enlisted force is more demographically representative of America than the officer corps. Today, the military remains in this hybrid period where partisan activity is forbidden by those in uniform, but political participation as private citizens is encouraged. This hybrid model is fairly clear for active duty personnel, but the appropriate boundaries for veterans, especially retired officers, are a little less clear. Combined with trends related to growing partisan polarization among Americans, increased public confidence in the military, politicization of the uniform by candidates, and growing use of social media by younger veterans and service members, this hybrid approach, nonpartisan while in uniform, but full rights as a citizen while out of uniform, has sometimes blurred the lines between political and partisan, between active duty and private citizen. Well, it's interesting because when talking to civilians about military voting, I find a common misconception is that there's these special voting booths on military bases around the country and around the world that military people just go to and cast their ballot. That, of course, isn't true. The short answer is, of course, they vote exactly the same way that civilians vote. They vote Either they go home and vote in person, whether early or on election day, or they cast an absentee ballot. Now, in most cases, the absentee ballot is exactly the same way that civilians would get it. They request it. It comes in the mail. You mark it. You seal it back into the security envelope and mail it back to your local county or election administrator, however your state is organized. So it basically military people overseas and their families and American citizens living overseas vote absentee ballot. Well, I think it's important for folks to know that the capability and the ability to vote absentee came about largely because politicians and soldiers in the army, and it was largely based on the army, we started seeing large numbers of them away from home during wars. The earliest large one was the Civil War, but we saw it also a little bit in World War I and especially in World War II. Politicians thinking they had a voting bloc that was going to support their president began pushing through laws that allowed these soldiers to vote absentee. Within a few decades after that, states started realizing that there was no particular reason that they shouldn't allow their own citizens the ability to have that same capability. And so um, by the 50s and certainly by the 70s and the 80s, the laws uh, finally were put in place, which pretty much evened out the ability for any American citizen, certainly the overseas ones in the military, to have access to it. And then more recently, states are, uh, well, every state in the union has now absentee voting laws of one shape or another. That was Dr. Don Inbody, author of The Soldier Vote, War, Politics, and the Ballot in America and a senior lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Texas State University. Despite all the focus on how military voters vote and who they vote for this year, Dr. Inbody told us that service members aren't really different from other Americans once you control for demographics. First, as I think I've said this in a number of places, 
the usual demographic predictors of political behavior still apply in the military. In other words, if somebody was a Republican and joins the military, they don't match. There's not some magic that turns them into a Democrat and, and not the other way around. They bring their politics into the military. So we've known for some time, probably since at least the end of the Vietnam War, that the officer corps is predominantly Republican, likely seven or eight to one. More recent surveys tend to back that up, particularly senior officers. Uh, they tend to be heavily Republican, heavily ideologically conservative. There's nothing magic about them coming in. So as I often say, if you're a, a Black female who tends to vote Democrat, you join the military, there's not some magic that makes them suddenly want to vote Republican. And as it turns out, among females in the military, which make up about 16% of the enlisted force, Black women are heavily overrepresented based on the population. States that tend to produce Republican majorities for president tend to produce Republican recruits. States that tend to produce Democratic majorities for president tend to produce independent recruits. We find that recruits tend to not identify as Democrats. That could be because that's what it is and the young people haven't uh, solidified their thinking or it might be protective because they're going into an organization that has at least the public persona of being very conservative and Republican. Maybe they're hiding it. I don't know. We find that uh, active duty personnel, particularly those under the age of 40, are less strongly partisan and less strongly ideological than the civilian population the same age. So even if they identify as Republican or Democrat, they tend to be in that weak Republican, weak Democrat crowd. Over 66% of active duty personnel are under the age of 30. That's a population that tends to not vote in the general population. And that's kind of what we've seen in the past. Now, we are apparently seeing a significantly higher number of youths voting this year, at least based on the early, uh, early voting and mail-in vote data. Whether that transfers to the military population, we'll have to wait and see. But I do expect there will be some increase in the younger active duty turnout. And again, the younger the person, the more likely they are to vote for Democratic candidates than the older. But of the military population, they tend to be white males. They tend to come from the South and the Mountain West. So if you have a white male from the South or the Mountain West, that would tend to predict that you've got somebody who has a Republican Party ID. Now, in terms of how they're going to vote, my guess is officers will probably pretty strongly vote for uh, Donald Trump, maybe not as strong as the seven or eight to one, but they will lean that direction pretty heavily. I think among enlisted, it'll be fairly evenly split. The Atlantic story reporting that President Trump called military veterans suckers and losers helped make military voting a major topic of conversation this year. But veteran voters and active duty voters aren't the same, again, largely because these groups have very different demographic compositions. In general, you can say that the veteran vote is more likely to lean Republican and more likely to be ideologically conservative than the active duty. Now, that's a generality. The more recent the veteran got off active duty, the more likely they are to more resemble the active duty crowd. But the longer they've been out of service, the more they tend to be pretty conservative. But that really bases on where they uh, became politically active, what age they were when they became politically active. And uh, they tend to keep that party ID and ideology for the rest of their life. Dr. Inbody and most scholars who study military voting think veteran voters are unlikely to be as supportive of President Trump as they were in 2016 when a CNN exit poll 
showed they broke for Trump 60 to 39 against Hillary Clinton. But that decreased support is probably not because of anything unique about the military or veterans. And Don thinks veteran support is unlikely to play a decisive role in this outcome, even though there are large numbers of veterans and military voters in some key swing states. I think the short answer is no. One, I think the vote's going to be pretty evenly split between them based on what we know. Two, the active duty military population is only about one half of 1% of the American population. So it's a very small little piece anyway. Even if you add the National Guard and Reserve, it only comes to about 1%. And then if you compare that to just the voting population, they'd be a slightly larger percentage. But I think only in the case of some local election where the margin of uh, victory was within a few votes would it actually make any difference at all. So the short answer is no. I don't think it is. Regardless of what some people say, the military vote is not a voting block that tends to vote the same way. And I think that's another one of the big misconceptions I, I keep getting from people. They assume that everybody in the military votes Republican and is conservative. And I think that's not what we're seeing in the evidence. Even if the votes of active duty service members or veterans are unlikely to be decisive on their own, it is clear the campaigns believe it is useful to create the perception that service members and veterans support their candidates. Some political action committees, like the With Honor Fund or Taking the Hill, have even begun actively recruiting veterans and military family members as congressional candidates because they think these veterans might have unique skills that could help us overcome rampant partisan polarization. Dr. Corey Shockey, the Director of Foreign and Defense Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute and the co-editor with Jim Mattis of Warriors and Citizens, American Views of Our Military, told us they found Americans are really unfamiliar with the military. That unfamiliarity has bred a kind of overestimation of people in uniform, when really they're just as good and sometimes just as flawed as the rest of us. That's what we've lost with the lack of familiarity. The understanding that even people who are wildly successful in the military can be dangerous, can hold political views that are invidious to democratic societies, can undertake the most breathtakingly illegal and immoral activities, because in fact, the American military is a microcosm of American society at large. And we very often, and in fact, a lot of veterans advocacy groups, I think unwittingly advance the notion that veterans are different and better than the rest of us. Groups like With Honor, for example, that is the veterans version of EMILY's List that provides funding to bring veterans into running for political office can seem like it's projecting the notion that veterans are different and better than the rest of us. But what people skip over about With Honor is that it requires the recipients of its support to commit to work in a principled and bipartisan way on policies when they are elected. So we need to hold veterans accountable to principles just as we need to hold all of the rest of us accountable to those principles. Because in fact, they're not different and better than the rest of us. They are just like the rest of us. Even so, Corey thinks the prominent role of veterans and retired generals and admirals in politics is unlikely to go away soon. So because the military is the most uh, admired institution in American public life, 
it is simply irresistible for politicians to try and hide behind uniforms. And so I think the arms race by political campaigns to have ever more retired military endorsements is unavoidable. But as Jim Golby's research points out, those endorsements do very little to change voters' attitudes. What they do succeed in doing is diminishing the respect that the public has for the military as an institution. It will probably take 4,000 years before that actually makes the American public think no different about our military than they think about Congress, but it's inching that direction. Again, as Jim's work points out, the public begins to think about our military in the same way they think about the Supreme Court, which is that it's noble and apolitical when it supports their preferred policies, but it's outrageously compromised when it opposes their policies. I think that's a pretty healthy American public attitude that is not treating our veterans which are a proxy for our military in politics, as knowing any more than the rest of us do. Corey thinks that when retired officers do involve themselves in politics, they don't deserve special power or consideration. She told us a fascinating story about how President George W. Bush responded to the revolt of the generals in 2006, the incident where a number of retired senior officers publicly called for the firing or resignation of then Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. When Steve Hadley and Josh Bolton went to the president and said, we think we're losing the war in Iraq, we need a different strategy that won't be possible with Secretary Rumsfeld as secretary, we believe you should dismiss him and get a different secretary. President Bush's first order response was terrific, which was, well, who do you recommend I replace him with? Because you don't beat something with nothing. And then they came back to him and said, we don't think Secretary Rumsfeld should be fired for six months because of the activism of retired senior officers. President Bush's response to that was picture perfect from a civil military relations perspective, which was to say, they're entitled to their opinion and their political activism, and I'm entitled to treat them as any other political actor. And that's textbook, right? They do know things about many aspects of warfare that the American public doesn't, but they are also political actors and other politicians are entitled to treat them that way. In the 2020 campaign, though, we've seen further blurring of the lines between active duty and private citizens. The Trump campaign used a photo that included current chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, in a campaign ad without his consent. The Biden campaign also removed a video from an ad that showed now-retired Lieutenant General Sean McFarlane in uniform walking next to Vice President Biden. Several military reservists running for Congress have used pictures of themselves in uniform, sometimes without the disclaimer required by Department of Defense regulations. And there are no laws or regulations prohibiting veterans from using pictures of themselves in partisan political advertisements. I asked Corey whether she thought this distinction between veteran and active duty is really all that consequential today, or whether people who worry about these things are blowing the concern out of proportion. I do think it's different, Jim, because the norm of not involving active duty military in political campaigns is to me a really significant norm. President Trump violated by giving campaign speeches 
and rolling out campaign tropes in front of active duty military crowds. Vice President Biden violated it by saying the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff was going to drag the president out of the office, out of office if he refused to leave. The Trump campaign using those kinds of pictures, the Biden campaign using those kinds of pictures, the conventions both in 2016 and 2020, having either high-level retirees purport to speak for the active duty military. The Democratic campaign had used footage of a retired Marine in a military uniform with a teensy little disclaimer at the bottom. Those are all violations and should be actively policed. The person who ought most to be actively policing them and is not is the Secretary of Defense. And I'm sympathetic both to the prior secretary's desire not to be heard in public in order not to provoke an erratic president. I'm much more sympathetic to the current secretary of defense believing he should be largely silent for the last 90 days in an election cycle in order not to be manipulated for partisan political purposes. But the one place where I think it is especially the secretary's job is to police infringements on the use of the American military for political purposes. And both the current and the prior secretary have shied away from doing that in public in a way that I think is actually really bad for the American military and its relationship with the broader American public. Dr. Shockey has a lot of confidence in those on active duty, though, and she believes that professional norms among both active and retired officers can and do help deter the worst violations of these norms and police them when they occur. She thinks that is exactly what we saw after the June 1st events in Lafayette Square. It has for some time been the case that the most important restraint on the politicization of the American military has been the professionalism of the American military and the supervision of the active duty by veterans in this <laughs> space. You know, if you think back to the Lafayette Square incident last summer, the avalanche of retired military objections to General Milley's comportment was, I think, the most important response. And I do not believe General Milley would have abased himself so beautifully as he did in his videotaped apology, had he not gotten such an avalanche of feedback from his predecessors and from the broader veteran community. As we saw in Lafayette Square, however, it is not unthinkable that state governors, or in an extreme case, the president himself, could call on members of the National Guard to support local law enforcement who become overwhelmed if there is violence in the midst of a drawn-out or contested presidential election. As Paul Son from the Washington Post reported last week, members of the National Guard, usually in civilian clothes and in support of local authorities, are already playing a number of roles to support election administration at the request of their state governors. Dr. Shockey remains concerned about the potential for election-related violence, but she thinks the National Guard is well-suited to this task and that leaders have learned important lessons over recent months. But she also thinks it is important that active duty service members play no direct role in the election. I think the National Guard, by and large, acquitted themselves with enormous integrity during the George Floyd protests last summer. 
There were a couple of outliers, helicopters over Washington, D.C., but the overwhelming number of guards, women, and men who were called into service by governors were proof why the National Guard serves this role much better than our active duty forces, because they view themselves as part of the community. They view themselves in a policing context. They're much more restrained. They understand de-escalation is the important piece of policing a domestic protest. So I actually thought that was enormously heartening. Moreover, I'm confident that guardsmen and women, that National Guard units are also thinking very carefully after their experience last summer about how to make sure that they police the community as part of the community. So I think you would likely see even improved performance in a contested election or during protests or calls by the president to his supporters if he is not reelected. So yes, I am worried about it. Uh, I think the most important posture for the active duty forces is exactly what General Milley has now stated, which is that we have no role in this and that guards, men and women called out in support of mayors and governors is the proper role for our military in any sort of public protest, public disturbance, public contestation of an election. Dr. Risa Brooks, the Alice Chalmers Associate Professor of Political Science and a non-resident senior associate in the International Security Program at CSIS, worries that some military leaders may be thinking about the question of National Guard or active duty involvement in the election too narrowly. We hear this sort of discussion of, is the military going to be involved or not in the election? And, you know, at the end of the day, I always wonder, well, what exactly does that mean? And when I think about what Chairman Milley seems to mean by that, he seems to be referencing, because he's obviously commented on it um, a couple of times now, and he seems to be referring to a direct role for the military in adjudicating the outcome. So there's this reference to courts and Congress playing a role in deciding who won the election, more or less. That's a pretty narrow sort of interpretation of what roles the military might play in the election, right? One might add to that that the military is not going to be involved in installing or removing presidents. Again, that's fairly narrow. When it comes down to it, I think we need to think about it more broadly in terms of the political influence and you know, stature of the U.S. military in American society and how that may play into this. Even though Dr. Brooks thinks a direct military role in election-related violence would be a bad outcome, she doesn't think it's an impossible situation for the military to find itself in. After all, we already have seen National Guard involvement this year. If violence escalates or spreads, local officials could become overwhelmed and ask for help. Being unprepared to act professionally in this context could be disastrous. So I think that's one kind of piece of it. And then there's the other sort of set of problems that people talk about when they say the military getting involved. And it, in that way, it's, it's these problems having to do with what if there is a large amount of political violence such that local and state authorities are overwhelmed or um, things get, you know, or they're drawn into that political violence in some horrific manner. You know, what does the military do then? And it may be that that's the sort of channel or mechanism through which the military is, becomes involved 
Chairman Milley and everyone else can say, oh, we're not going to be involved, but that doesn't forestall that possibility that that could really happen. And then the military leadership's going to be in a sticky situation, especially because there is really no clear neutral position to be had here, right? If you're in the streets, depending on what the orders are that are given, if you're in the streets sort of policing, de facto policing Americans, somebody's going to interpret that as being on one side or another. It's really hard to sort of be engaged in such a fraught moment without sort of the perception of, oh, you're backing up Donald Trump's claims about X, Y, Z, or you're supporting, you know, Biden's sort of argument that he won the presidency by being in the streets. And so I think it's really a, a problem that we can't look away from, that the military can't look away from, and trying to sort of suggest that is, you know, problematical. Risa does think these outcomes are worst case scenarios, though. She sees little value in public messaging by military leaders about their potential role in addressing political violence. But she does think leaders should be thinking about these problems and preparing their units in case they are called to support local authorities. I think public discussion of how the military is preparing to deal with mass political violence is probably unproductive. I think it will scare people. It will be viewed as already, there's no neutral ground in our world today, as you know, as you know, with all your work on polarization and partisanship, right? It will be viewed as something that is supporting one side or another. It'll be twisted, whether it's intended to be that way or not. And so I think that's politically fraught to do things in public. What I really worry about is in terms of what's happening behind the scenes is that the military leadership does not like to think about itself, its role in politics, its relation to politics. It would much rather just sort of, you know, say that's not really our problem. We really don't have to deal with that. And even if there's engagement right now, the mindset and culture of the military leadership, those in those positions, is not conducive to the kind of agile thinking and awareness of domestic politics that is required. I'll give you one example. I was in a conversation with somebody, a group conversation, and somebody said in that conversation, referring to Milley wearing his battle dress out to meet protesters on the streets of Washington, D.C. in early June, somebody said, well, you know, Military leaders always do that. They always go visit the troops. And I said to that person, I said, but yeah, it looks really different in a domestic political context. It's not the same thing. These guys are culturally not used to doing this, and they're not interested in thinking about the military's roles in these ways. As I often say, it's a see no evil, hear no evil kind of dynamic. That's the approach to politics. We don't want to deal with it. And so are they really prepared to sort of think it through and to look down the path? I worry about that. Risa also told us she thinks military leaders need to think about these challenges in different ways than they're used to doing is not enough to assess whether you are acting for the right reasons. You also have to think about how members of the public will interpret your actions in a highly volatile and polarized context. I would say judge what you're going to do, not based on your motivations, but based on the consequences it will have. So often when, and this is very common with retired officers, when they talk about what they're doing, they talk about it in terms of what are their motives? Are they pure or not? Are they for national security? 
And that is not the right metric for this kind of situation. You need to think about not what you're trying to accomplish, but what you will accomplish through your action. I would also say don't equate neutrality with passivity. Being neutral does not always mean doing nothing. That is a huge mistake that we see over and over again. It's also part of the Lafayette Square stuff, sort of being brought into that situation. You know, the sense of, well, I'm going along, therefore I'm apolitical. And we soon learned that that was not right. One other thing I would say is to think strategically. Think strategic interaction. Think about what if I do X, the other side does Y, and that should condition what I do in the first place. Don't just think about, I'm going to do X, and then we'll see what happens. You know, play it all the way through with all of the different actors and all the different scenarios so that when what actually does happen, assuming something bad does, because we don't know, maybe it won't, but if it does, you won't know exactly, you won't be able to predict exactly how that comes about, but you'll have prepared sort of mentally to think in the way that you'll need to to manage the situation. One thing I take away from our conversations with both Corey and Risa is that any situation in which members of the National Guard or even, God forbid, active duty troops are called to play a role could be extremely volatile and challenging. The best outcome for our troops and for our democracy is to avoid those situations. The reality or even the perception of the military playing a direct and coercive role in or around our elections could undermine some of our most sacred values. In the end, decisions about the extent to which the military might play any sort of a direct role are probably more up to civilian leaders and to voters than to the military. That's our show for today. If you want to hear more from our terrific guests, you can find Don Inbody on Twitter at InbodyD, I-N-B-O-D-Y-D, Corey Shockey at Corey Shockey, Risa Brooks at Risa Brooks 12. And if you haven't already, please vote. There's a lot of misinformation about how to vote, so go directly to your local voting authorities with any questions. And vote safely. Make your voice in our democracy heard, regardless of what candidates you support at the local or federal level. If you liked what you heard today, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a five-star rating really does help other people find the show. And we'd love to hear from our listeners, especially when they share terrible dad jokes. Follow us on Twitter. We're at T-Y-F-Y-S underscore podcast. Or send us an email telling us what you think of the show or asking Jim to ease off the dad jokes. Our address is T-Y-F-Y-S podcast at gmail.com. Polite notes only, please. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.